we're all made up of this dust that's been around since the Big Bang. In a sense, there is nothing new. We form, deform, reform, we live, die. It's, these are not separate events. These are events inherent to us as living creatures on this planet. I guess I have a general idea of where I want the conversation to go, but you know, I'll let you lead the way. Um, you, you already know what, what the hell you're doing, so you don't need me to direct <laughs> you. Uh, but I just thought it was so interesting, as did many people, of your focus of trying to rethink, I guess, how it is we die. And I think of the way you worded it in your, in your initial TED Talk. And so I do want to kind of dig into that and also how you kind of transformed into that thinking, whether it was something you've always believed or due to your own personal experience specifically which I know mm -hmm. you alluded to, and then kind of how it is going today. So I don't know how, what timeline you want to start, maybe by starting with your experience or whatever really was that drove you to want to get creative with how people do die. Yeah, well, thanks, Dave. I, you know, could start that clock many different places. I mean, I grew up, I grew up around disability a lot. Uh, my mother had polio and used a wheelchair for most of my life. And you know, I've just sort of, that was an entree as a young person into seeing, especially as a sort of a suburban white guy, it was my, <laughs> excuse me, it was my stepping into something of the other compared to sort of the, the template I would, that was around me. And I, you know, it sort of brought sensitivities as a kid and just a certain way of thinking and just knowing that the social order is made up, <laughs> is fraught. People like to have enemies. People like to see something that they don't want to be. And there's just all sorts of things we can say about the psychology that falls around people with disabilities or any category of other. Um, but that kind of tuned me in in a certain way. And then I got injured when I was 19 in college. And that resulted, it was an electrical accident that resulted in me becoming an amputee. And that really... That really turn, tuned me into death, per se. Not just loss, but the, the big one, uh, death. My own death. I mean, that, that's what kind of got me really, whoa, kind of paying attention. And so then from there, there's all sorts of roads that kind of came together for me to enter in this work. But those are the two sort of early experiences in my life that pushed me in this direction. Yeah, and you said... Uh... I guess the insights that you've had, the one that really stuck out was so prominent in when I when I did listen to you in regards to, and it, you know it hit me yesterday when I was thinking about talking with you today, and I thought about when you when you mentioned the snowball, and just mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what it was. I might have veered off and completely misinterpreted it in my own way, but mm -hmm. just the simplicity of it, how you how you were talking about how it melted and you know it transfers back to water. And how beautiful mm -hmm. that is. And I, because one thing with my dad, for example, I, I, what I remember learning from him, one specific thing, whether he taught it directly or indirectly, it's always the little things in life that seem to be the most profound. And I feel like a snowball is so routine. And maybe not in Los Angeles, but you know what I mean? It's pretty routine in regards to it's just a snowball. Most people just pick it up, throw it, don't even acknowledge it. But the fact that you acknowledge it just shows a depth that I feel like translates to what you're doing. And and from that perspective, I feel like it just gets so much deeper into what you're doing. So what is that moment or that experience or your path in your life? What do you think of dying? Like, I know, I know you get into it a little bit more and you're here, but feel free to expand on that. 
Yeah. Well, that snowball moment was really just like you say, it was such a simple thing. And it just, but it kind of hooked, it caught, caught me. You know, the backdrop of a burn unit is a pretty gnarly place. And it's the, it's about the, well, the least natural environment there is. I mean, nature is the, I mean, you have to be sterile. Everything is, there's no windows. I mean, it's just a holy, it's a, it's entirely made up environment. And so it's something to see a piece of nature snuck, you know, brought into the burning it. And there's just something about holding this. First of all, just the feeling of coldness. You know, I was burned and all. It was just, there's something about feeling that coldness in my hand. And then just watching this snow, just this very simple thing. You know, of course, it also touched me, brought me out of the hospital, which was a beautiful kind of moment to be reminded that there was a larger world out there. But just feeling it melt, you know, it, it was like, you could say the snow was going away, but no, it was just becoming water. And from there, it'll evaporate and become vapor. And it's just all these things, you know, you just start, it was a real quick kind of hit of, it was a feeling, Dave, more than like a narrative popped in my head. It was, but the feeling in retrospect was essentially like, ah, well, death is change. You know, it depends how you look at it, depends from what point of view, are you coming, or are you going, depends on which way you're looking. But in a way, nothing, in a way, everything in this life gets lost, and in a way, nothing gets lost, you know. Uh, that's sort of true at the atomic level, you know. We're all made up of this dust that's been around since the Big Bang. There is nothing, in a sense, there is nothing new. We complete, we form, deform, reform, we live, die. It's These are not separate events. These are events inherent to us as living creatures on this planet, and it's just for one, it's just kind of outrageous. For two, it's just really stunningly beautiful. And you can just see it in a simple snowball. You can watch that very thing happen. And then the last piece of it was really this, this idea of this aesthetic experience. That I've, and then I went on to study art and art history and just got kind of really getting into this notion of aesthetics. But essentially, the idea of the aesthetics being just a, a perception, a sensation, a, fe- a feeling, a sensation. And... As I was sitting in that hospital bed, kind of near death, wondering what life was going to be like if I did survive, like if I could feel that snowball and if I could witness that snowball and if I could see myself in that snowball in this very simple way, then that felt like enough to me. That felt like adequate. That was an aesthetic experience. It was self-contained. I didn't need anything else. I wasn't reminded of all that I didn't have. Everything was just fine the way it was for a moment. And that was... (laughs) just a very welcome reprieve in an otherwise pretty miserable experience in a burn unit. So for all those things, that was just, and that was just watching a piece of snow melt and feeling it melt. That was it. Like if I feel nothing, if my life has nothing more to it than feeling this, that's enough, which was a really nice bottom line to hit when you're amidst all this loss. So if I, it was so much of my life since then was meant to sort of recapture or revisit that place. Um, and so that led me, well, many places, but eventually death became, at first I was really interested in like, like this sort of disability frame. Like what do humans do when they bump up against things they can't change? You know, generally if you let your, with enough support, um, and if you frame it right, it can be a creative spur. When, when humans bump up against limits, we tend to get creative. We find workarounds, workthroughs. So I was just very interested in that relationship between limitation and creativity. 
you know, and what could I do with this limitation? What could I do with this change? And even limitations, that's, that's loaded. That implies it's what it can't do. If you just look at a thing as a thing and, and whatever it is, it is, and you just work with that, it's not framed around what it isn't. And so that really, I love that kind of alchemy our minds can do. We can frame and reframe things. We can help our, see ourselves as belonging. We can totally frame it so that we're separate. We have all this power of perspective. So that was what I was following for a while. And that led me an interest into medicine. I thought I would do rehab medicine, work with people like myself who had lost something or been ill or something had befallen them. And they were trying to kind of recreate themselves in the world just for all these reasons. But eventually, for all sorts of reasons, it, it, I landed where my interest went really was more squarely with end of life. Because it started feeling like if I have a purpose or if I, if I have a goal in life, you might say, I would like to come to love reality. I would like to come to know and love reality. I would like to be okay with reality. I would like to get out of the way of reality. I would like to just be reality, not constantly reflecting on it and yanking it around. And to that big end, getting myself to love, love reality, well, you know, you got to dance with death at some point. That had just become so obvious. It's just a fact. It just is. It's just part of the deal. And by, but I've noticed with myself and others, if you stretch yourself to accommodate this big thing called death, well, what you've stretched yourself to do is accommodate a lot of life. And you start seeing the sort of amazing inclusivity that death brings us. Everything must go. You know, and that, wow, it actually can be this equalizer. It can be this connecting force. You and I, Dave, just me the first time, you and I have so much in common by virtue of that someday we will die and, some, and that we happen to be alive at the same time on the same planet. The fact that we're talking right now is plenty miraculous enough, pl plenty unlikely enough to be remarkable. And what gives it its meaning is that it's we don't have unlimited time. So you and I choosing to spend an hour together because we don't have forever? That's what kind of gives it its power, its poignancy. So you st start rolling around with death. And first of all, it's like that snowball. Did the snow die or just become something else? Yes, to both, you know. So there's this beauty in it. There's this truth in it. And there's just this hugeness in it. And because everyone's included, every parts of our every part of ourself is included. And maybe with following this train, we can come to peace with ourselves, uh, not hate ourselves or like only this part of myself or whatever else. Maybe I could just settle into just loving it all. And that seems like a great way forward. Sheesh, uh, you kind of got me a little, so I was wor worried about what to say next after following that. Uh, <laughs> in regards mm -hmm. to, you're saying uh, death kind of accommodates and, and reverting kind of backwards again towards our, our ability with our perspective faculty in regards to framing things. Is that what mm -hmm. you're saying death does that it, it could it shifts our perspective on just the way we view our reality. And in that case, yeah. does that help heal what you're talking about is the madness of just trying to understand reality? That's kind of like a three point loaded question statement I just made. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But like, is that, is, I feel like death is work. It kind of, you work backwards with the conversation of death and death is a mm -hmm. conversation about how to live life fuller. And I seem like that's what you're, you've gotten out of it. That's a very big thing, Dave. You're right on. It's sort of like it bookends our lives 
in a way. And that gives us a limited amount of time on the planet. That gives us a sort of a beginning, middle, and an end. That means that there's a little spark in that. Well, shit, I don't have forever. You know, I should think about how I want to use this time. Oh, this time is actually precious. It's not just a pain in the ass to be alive. It's a remarkable (laughs) thing to be alive. You know, and so by framing it, by giving it these sort of structures and limits, it gives us something to react to, to work with. Put it this way. I don't know that meaning would have much meaning. I don't know what would have, I don't even know the notion of meaning. I don't know if it exists if everything just went on forever, or if you and I could take our time for granted and eventually we could say anything and everything and, you know. It would really disrupt our ability to sort of love a particular person or a thing, the specialness of a moment. It's just not just another moment. It is the moment. It's the one we have. It's the only one we have. So that kind of brings out this urgency, and it brings this kind of creative lens of bouncing against these limitations, like we were saying earlier. And it also gives us a relationship to not knowing to mystery it allows us to kind of lean into like what the heck is this what became before me what comes after me what is up in this night sky death can be kind of fascinating and pull you into being curious about things that we don't understand and so beyond just knowing i don't know that i can know death but i can feel it i can have it in my bones i don't know if i can understand it kind of cerebrally all this stuff i can peck around at it and it's kind of fun to do so it is fun. It is, but ultimately it kind of forces me to just... Drives me nuts, but it's fun. Yeah, it's endless, but ultimately it kind of forces us to kind of accept it or fight it or do something, but it's a marsh, it marshals energy, and it points out things big, that there's something going on way bigger than you and me, are, but, and inclusive of you and me. So anyway, buddy, I'm going on and on, but somewhere in please. there is my answer. Yeah, no, I, I love rant, rant all day, please. Phenomenal. You're so you say it so well. And I, this is I'm talking about rant. I'm kind of going off on a side topic, or not even a topic. Just came to me. But you mentioned um, very simply how most. This is in your TED talk, from what I'm recollecting. Uh, how most people are scared of how, like the suffering, I guess the suffering aspect or how we're going to die, which I think is pretty standard. And I've, I've thought about that, you know, it's like, I'm actually, I guess the minority, because I, listen, I don't want to suffer, no one who the hell wants to suffer, but I'm get more freaked out and have to relax my brain when I think about being dead, because that whole, that whole mm-hmm. game is just, puts me in a really weird place. And I have a podcast discussing death, so you as the host, you think, oh, this guy has his shit together with death. And not really. And when I think about what happens after, it brings you back again to the snowball. Because we think about how energy cannot be created nor destroyed. It's like, well, if that's mm-hmm. a pretty well-known fact that science, oh, everyone believes in, it's like then we're just a snowball melting to whatever's next. And then what right. the hell is next? So like that stuff, like, <laughs> oh, we're just going to be right. there. Like Jim Jeffries, a comedian, mm-hmm. says – He's, I think he's, I don't know what he is now, one of his specials, an Australian phenomenal comedian. He mentioned how once you die and it's eternal, he's like, it's eternal. Eventually you're going to get bored. <laughs> it's going to be like, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> so that kind of freaks me out too. It's like, oh my God. I'm like, I get like the, the chills and my, my hair starts sticking up and I, <laughs> I don't really know where I'm going with this, but the idea of what happens <laughs> after is, is just confusing. It's just confusing. I guess if we're yeah. dead, maybe we won't know. But if we're energy or we still conscious, like, I don't, 
I don't even know where you're going to want it, what you're going to pull from that, but I had to let that out. <laughs> I'm with you. I mean, even as you're talking, right? It's both terrifying. It's kind of absurd. It's kind of beautiful. Yeah. It's many things. And here again, it kind of forces us to embrace a, a many-thinged truth. It's not one thing or another. Uh, it's You got to just take it all. And it's quite a meal. So I'm with you. I think what what so you can kind of tease it apart. We we do know some things just following what we can observe. You can follow the body and how it's you know our bodies are home to trillions of little creatures, and if we leave our bodies alone, it'll decay. And that energy kind of you can clearly see yourself compost and become a blade of glass, blade of grass, or whatever. That's observable. That's not a poem or a. <laughs> we know that happens to the yeah. body. Okay, that's one thing. You know, our effects on each other outlast us, you know. Let's say I die tonight, Dave. You'll remember me for a day or two at least from our conversation. You know, that, hey, that don't I'll say yourself keep living short, in your yeah. memory for a moment. You know, so there's you start pecking away and it's like, well, what really what ends? Well, I don't really know. I really that's the most honest answer, and which is just kind of fascinating. But I I do think that again gets down to so then what I think we're talking about is consciousness. That's the that's the piece of the puzzle or spirit. I don't you know call it what you will. That I don't know. We can't we can't observe that thing. So that becomes really the nidus of intrigue, at least for me, is what the hell is consciousness? And that is an open question. Yeah. Have you read have you ever read the book uh, or you're familiar with Bruce Lipton? No, I don't, I don't read much, honestly. Uh, well, if you're ever looking for a book, if you're ever looking for a read, or ever decide to have time, if that is, to check out a book <laughs> or even listen, he has a lecture called Biology of Belief. And uh, that book honestly changed my life. He's a biologist that kind of discusses, I guess, I mean, at the end of the book, it wasn't about dying or death, but he just makes, he explains the biology of our of ourselves and quantum physics in a way simpler form. So my, excuse my French, dumbass hmm. can understand it. And uh, it just really makes me contemplate that whole idea of consciousness and what the hell is coming next. And at the end of the day, I guess we won't know till we know. But and that's the beauty. I think you're saying is that we do all share that. We all we're all going the same freaking way. So it's it's like yeah. I, I think there's beauty in that in that camaraderie of death, as weird as that sounds. So it, I think there is. There is. Yes. There is. And regard and I keep going from topic to topic. But in regards to what what do you what have you been up to now in regards to uh, you know since I guess you started rethinking how it is we die like what do you where are you with that? Well, right, that's getting back to your earlier question, but I'm sorry, you and I'm tangenting to the part of that sort of stance. Uh, you know, I I don't know that I ever thought I was going to change how we die, but it was sort of like you look around, especially as a physician, and we're you know the house of you know hospitals have become sort of the the house of God too. That's where people. That's the church. That's the family. That's people. Just end up in the hospital, and you see so much of this stuff play out, and you see this stuff play out in ways that are some of the suffer some of the suffering slash joy is as you and I are talking is is, is exactly what we're talking about is you know, but then there's all this made up pain where people aren't talking honestly to each other or not being emotionally kind or supportive, not, you know, trying to shush someone who dares to cry or, you know, shame people for being sick and wasting their tax dollars. You know, I, it's whatever. We just do all sorts of 
gnarly things to each other. And the healthcare system just has tried to make an enemy of death and you feel it. I mean, there's just myriad ways that we silly, silly humans take a take a hard but majestic thing like death and somehow make it even harder. That is was the mobilizing thing for me. And so that's what I wanted to change was sort of our systems around it, the healthcare, but also society, which I love what you're doing, Dave. We need to just talk about this. Like there, I, I meet so many people who can't even say the word death or cancer and they're among their friends or family. Like they have to, you have to pretend it's not happening. Or if you say it's, if you say death, then it'll happen. Whatever. We we barricade ourselves against this stuff. And then we end up, when it's our turn or someone we love's turn, well, guess what? They feel lost and ashamed and embarrassed because have we've all been treating this natural, unavoidable event. So <laughs> anyway, that's the nature of my soapbox. So um, you know, I worked at a little hospice house called Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, oh, an amazing, beautiful place. And one of the things I got to see there was this sort of this hypothesis that, again, I came from the art world, that design, that the arts, that aesthetics, that the built environment could have a lot to, to lend this process. If we had beautiful places that were built for this phase of life and where families could be, et cetera. I've seen it play out. It, it changes the experience. It's it's a, a remarkable thing. So originally I wanted to kind of build a bunch of these places and everything was going to be great. But I learned that those places, we don't, insurance doesn't cover the cost of these places. Society hasn't sort of bandied around and said it's important enough to support it philanthropically forevermore. Zen Hospice had to close. One of the most famous hospice houses I've ever heard of couldn't afford to stay open. So policy and health policy is all screwed up the way we reimburse for what kind of care. So I backed off my quest to build these kinds of the work on the infrastructure of death and backed into got the, the earlier work that needs much more massaging, pushing on the conversation like we're doing, getting people thinking and feeling, priming smarter people than myself to get involved at the policy level or eventually infrastructure. But so that's, I've had to kind of get a little bit more modest and just work on these sort of subterranean bits and hopefully enough conversations like ours, architects will get in the mix, policymakers will realize they die too, et cetera, et cetera. Doctors <laughs> will change the <laughs> way we, we educate ourselves. And so that's that's the hope. And we got a long way to go. So that, that's me answering your earlier question. Where that's landed me now, pre-pandemic, I thought I was going to build a my partner and I, Sonia, she and I, we thought we were going to build like a nonprofit library to to push back on the poor folks who are left to just basically Google their disease, you know, and just go down these rabbit holes of That's clever. hellishly decontextualized information and feel worse, you know, and become more confused. So the unnecessary suffering of bad information, we were going to create this place of vetted resources. And then the pandemic hit. So we said, mm, wow, no, raising money for a nonprofit library would be pretty tricky right now. And people need direct care. They need support. They need to talk. So we started Metal Health. We hung our shingle as this online palliative care outlet. We just come by the hour, come talk to palliative care folks about just about anything. Sometimes it feels like a hotline. Sometimes it's more like therapy. Sometimes it's kind of preparing for medical care. It's, it's many things, but it's called Metal Health, M-E-T-T-L-E, metalhealth.com. That's our little... Our M-E-T-T-L-E? Okay. Yeah, that's our right. baby. So that's what we're doing now. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you said uh, it really is a cultural change in regards to what you were doing and are doing 
especially with coming to policy and insurance and all that, all that stuff. Like that's, that's like, that's not, there's a lot of buttons to push there in order to get that to be completely accepted. And the insurance thing I imagine would be a massive, a massive overhaul and challenge, but with time, you know, it's going to just get to slowly like chip away, I assume. And the thing, the thing about when, I guess when you're focusing on what you're doing with Zen and I guess palliative and hospice, obviously it's important for the person that's passing to, you know, I guess reduce the suffering or just trans like transition in a smoother way. But I also see that as really true, like extremely important for the people that like the families and the friends and the people that are going to be still here after someone dies. Like I have a, a really good friend, Jorge, who was just on my podcast. And unfortunately he was on it twice, which is, which my podcast is not exactly the best reason to be a second time guest person. Um, but he had a, an amazing transition with his mother who passed and it wasn't in the format of what you were doing and in, in the creative aspect, but it was, a, it was, he was by her side. It was peaceful. It was Zen in, and no pun intended. And that transition was really healing for him. So as much as it was a soothing transition for his mother who passed and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of suffering. It was really important for him. And I feel like there's so many ways you can lose someone and or go through something and it's just not it's going to stick with you for a while then you have to work those kinks out for a long time but i feel like going like doing what you're you are doing would help the grieving process for so many people let alone the person that actually died right on brother death is such a galvanizing organizing force and you can follow financial threads to kind of get to its importance you can find a moral threads you can find social threads they all kind of point us to this is something that deserves some attention um, but one of one of the great ones on the list is what you described is sort of this intergenerational effect so if a lot of us are sort of we've especially in the 20th century is probably the nadir of death phobia because we've invented so many spectacular distractions from it and marketed a, a healthcare system that sort of will seduce you into thinking that anything's fixable, treatable. So I don't know that we've, as a people, ever been more alienated from the subject. And so we get weird around it, get scarier than it needs to be. It's un, We don't look at it. So by coaxing it out of those shadows and looking at it, well, it becomes more knowable, less scary, et cetera. But anyway, so, right, this, this all, this is a very intricate thing that's going to take time. We all have to participate in it. But to your point about, as you're noting with Jorge, you know, it does make a huge, huge difference. And we, we know this. And what you're pointing to is the realization that dying is an experience. I mean, otherwise you could say, Jorge's mom died. Your dad died. My sister died. Death, yes or no. But that's not what, yes, we know people die. That's not what sits in our nervous system. That's not what sits in our memory. That's not how we feel about it. It's not just a thing that happens, yes or no. How it's experienced colors the experience the flavor, the sensations that go with it, the feelings that go with it. And that's where so much of the action is. So if a death can be, you know, sort of this gentle, peaceful, little suffering or pain, and people have space to come unglued, and they're not shushed for crying, and they're not ashamed to be dying, you know, that of course that changes the experience. Doesn't mm -hmm. change the fact. Yes, yes, fact. Death, death, 
person died. Yes, fact. Right. But this experiential piece is where so much of the action is. I'm sorry, just going around loops. But that's what I think Jorge is pointing us to. And that's what I think you and I understand, too, in our own experiences. So, And so start treating it as an experience. Well, we can condition that experience. Yeah, there's a ton of experience to draw from. <laughs> and we can condition that experience like we do going to the museum or to school or home. We've spent a lot of time of how we nest ourselves, and that affects how we feel about it. Amen. And there's uh, another one. I keep pulling up a guest that I've had in the past, but there's uh, a woman by the name of Elizabeth. She has a company called My Farewelling, and it's a funeral business. And it's a, I guess you would say, hopefully I'm not butchering this, but it's like a bespoke funeral. Mm -hmm. So you can actually, and once again, obviously the person's passed already, but the family can have a customized funeral as opposed to that cookie cutter funeral style. And I just kind of related that mm. to what, you know, your thought with uh, being in the hospital or something of the sort, it's not really conditioned for patients. It's it's not it's not meant to be lived out there and it's just cold or whatever. But uh, she, she has a way of almost like a wedding planner would set up a funeral in the way that the grieving family wants it to honor the person that they love. And I thought that was just a really cool experiential way of kind of having a, a more thoughtful transition that I think can lead on to e easier future healing like we just discussed. But, um, you know, it's, I think I think I just thought it was pretty cool. That's beautiful. And and just a, one last statement. I mean, imagine now follow, if, if more and more of us have access to this kind of experience, this kind of death, and I imagine Jorge will think about his own death a little bit differently now that he's seen how beautiful or transformative or healing it as it can be. And this way across a few generations, maybe we'll have put this sort of the very common death anxiety and phobia sort of in its place and what a public service that would be. Seriously. And then I'm hoping uh, little conversations like these, you know, get through to some people it may take time, but uh, I've, I have noticed there definitely is more of a community for this conversation. I thought there was before I started this. So I think the last couple of years probably helped a little bit considering what the hell's going on. But listen, BJ, uh, I want to thank you for sharing this space with me. And uh, before I even say goodbye, everything good with you? Yeah, buddy. Thank you. Thank good? you, David. It's a wild time for all of us. Uh, I had a little surgery my, a couple months ago. I'm healing up. Another couple weeks, I'll be upright again. So good. just in time for summer. There we go, baby. All right. Well, listen, man, it's a true pleasure. You have so many wise words and you're so well-spoken. And uh, sometimes I feel like you're, it's very easy for you to pull. I mean, I don't know how other people feel. I feel like I'm getting like mm -hmm. a slow little, I don't know if you watch Star Wars, that little when the the ship like sucks you in. I feel like I'm kind of getting into your, you like pull people into your mind. You, you get things so deeply and it's not as brilliant. And it's really, it's really cool to see. I think most people don't think at all. So it's refreshing to hear someone that will think so deeply. So I want to thank you for the time for being on here. Oh, it's a pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me, buddy. And I appreciate you sharing your story and living out loud in the with the world. This is not just an idea. This is a thing. This is a feeling. And I'm glad that you're honest about it. I really appreciate it. <laughs>